so three major themes in the season of Lent. <clears throat> the first of them being the theme of repentance. Now, why would anyone need to repent? <laughs> because they have sins, sins right? So sin and repentance go together. Uh, repentance is, the, is a major theme. Also, our own mortality. What is that? We're all going to die yeah. one day. And that's another heavy theme. Sin and repentance and death. But then also the third theme is hope, which seems like a strange uh, bedfellow there for those other themes. Uh, some have called this season a bright sadness, which precedes Easter. It's bright. It's full of hope because we're moving towards Easter. And yet it's also full of sadness because we see, well, the reason why Easter was necessary, both in ourselves and the world around us. So a bright sadness, themes of sin and repentance, of death, and yet also a season marked by hope. Uh, I think each of those themes becomes apparent. If any of you were here on Ash Wednesday when we took ashes, which I still have a few up here, and used them to mark the sign of the cross on foreheads and upon hands, the traditional words spoken of a person when they receive the mark of the cross with the ashes is you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There's the death part. But then, immediately following those words, repent. Sin and repentance part. And believe the good news of the gospel. There's the hope part. That simple liturgical action shapes and gives meaning to and announces what we're going to do for the next 40 days, 40 days which match the 40 days which Jesus spent right here in this passage in the wilderness. A time where he faced temptation, a time where he fasted and prayed, and a time from which he emerged victorious. After the devil tempted with everything he had, couldn't win, he left him. But he came back, it says, at an opportune time. So here's, here's the season. Uh, here's the framing. Uh, the passage that we've got uh, today will be the passage next week as well. Um, and next week, I'm going to hopefully show you some very practical ways that you can move through this season of Lent. Some things that you can practice and do, which Jesus offers to us through his time in the wilderness. But this morning, I want to show you, uh, maybe provide a, a ground or a framework for what we'll encounter next week. I want you to see Jesus living out in his own person this pattern of going into exile, going into the wilderness, going into a place which is barren and difficult to traverse, which is dangerous, which is challenging, where death is, is a possibility and where temptation faces you. So in order to do that, I want us to take a look. Remember, sin and repentance, death and hope. Where does sin first appear in the Bible? The book of Genesis. Genesis. Where does death show up in the Bible? Genesis. What book? Genesis, Genesis, right? From the very beginning. Just about. Like second page. <laughs> and yes, where does hope also show up in the Bible? Genesis. Also in Genesis. Genesis. So what I want to do this morning is to take these 40 days Jesus shows us uh, and offers up to us, but also 
let's trace out the pattern we see in Genesis moving from generation to generation because they live out the pattern of sin, which leads to death, but also is coupled with God's action and so, so also coupled with hope. And then I want to show you how Jesus takes in all of Genesis into himself and also your life too and gives us the 40 days in the wilderness. So here we go. Uh, we'll start with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are creating God's image, placed in the garden, placed in paradise, placed in this place of communion with God. And then there's the fall into sin, right? How did that happen? Well, we're told that a serpent came to Eve as she stood in front of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree from which God said, if you, shall eat, if you eat of it, don't, because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Eve stands looking at the, looking at the tree, looking at the fruit. The serpent comes. The serpent, which is later identified in Scripture as the devil, comes and causes her to question God. Is what God said really true? Is God really good? Does he really truly desire what's good for me in my life? Places the doubts. Then directly contradict contradicts what God has said and she takes from the fruit of the tree and eats of it and she gives some to Adam. And they fall. Um, Ephraim the Syrian, 4th century poet and theologian and hymn writer for the church said that he likens um, the words that come into our ear uh, he likens our ear uh, to a womb. He says when Eve listened to the words of the serpent it was as if her ear became pregnant and she gave birth to sin. Ephraim says that Mary, who just as Jesus is the second Adam, Mary, he likens to the second Eve. E, uh, Mary hears the words of the angel Gabriel. And she then, through her ear, becomes pregnant with Christ and gives birth uh, to, to God incarnate. So we'll get to some of that next week because um, it, it's, a, it's a serious thing. You also wonder, well, what, what is the devil? How is the devil tempting Jesus? He's whispering in his ear. How does Jesus overcome? By responding with the words of Scripture. What word is he listening to and what word are you listening to? Maybe that's a little, little hint, a sneak peek at next week. Uh, but Adam and Eve fall into sin, and where, what happens? They are set outside of paradise. And two types of death in the scriptures. In the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. The death of the soul is when it is separated from God. The death of the body is when the soul is separated from the body. And so as they turn from God, and in fact separate their life in the world from God by taking the fruit, eating it, trying to live apart from what God has said and apart from connection with Him. When they seek that, their soul dies. Adam and Eve's soul becomes dark. And here's that word noose again. The soul is darkened. Uh, they experience a measure of death. Then later, of course, Adam and Eve both die and their soul is separated from their body. And their life, their body no longer has life in it. So these two forms of death are marked by a separation from God. That's the move outside the garden. Separated now from the communion they shared with him in it. 
marked out. If you look at the scripture, um, you, can, you, you can envision like a walled garden in a sense with thorns and brambles that make an exterior barrier. And of course, the angel with the flaming sword who stands at the door, at the gate. So they're outside paradise where now instead of this life of abundance, they're scratching away at the ground, <coughs> clawing at it to produce bread or, or wheat. Um, they live a difficult and a hard existence now. That is their journey into exile, into the wilderness. There was sin, which led to death. In this instance, the first form, a separation from God. Can you see that pattern in Adam and Eve? Can you see that pattern in yourself? What happens when you sin? You pursue life or you pursue something, not trusting that what God has for you is good for you, and you try to make your own way, and then you hide from God. There's a hiding that takes place. They, they went and they went among the fig leaves and hid themselves and covered themselves with fig leaves and hid in the trees. They tried to get away. That's, that's the pattern. And in fact, that's the death of your soul. Sin followed by death. Um, this basic pattern gets played out over and over again throughout the entirety of the rest of the book of Genesis. The same thing. And in fact, throughout all the generations and in the life of every person until you appeared on the earth and you've done it too. Me too. It's the same basic pattern. Sin which leads to death, separation from God. Let's look at the very next generation. Adam and Eve have two sons. What are their names? Cain and Abel, right? Can you identify sin or death in any part of that story? Cain. Yes, Cain murders Abel. The first generation on the earth ends and terminates with murder. Didn't take long, did it? Sin, which led to murder, which led to exile. You'll remember, God's, God comes looking, just as he came looking for Adam and Eve, he comes looking for Cain, says, what, the blood of your brother is calling to me from the ground. What have you done? And then he sets him, just as Adam and Eve moved from paradise out into this fallen world, out into exile, away from God, so God sets Cain, sends him out into the wilderness. And just like Adam and Eve were clothed with animal skins because they were no longer fully human, really, anymore, to be fully human is to be in communion with God. To be fully human, to bear the name Adam, which is not necessarily a, a first-person name to begin with. It's, the it's human being. It's to be like the second Adam. It's to be like Jesus in full communion with God and with uh, their fellow human beings. That's what, so most of us will say, well, I'm just human, meaning I just sin. Right? But to be truly human is to be like the true human being, Jesus Christ. But just as Adam and Eve were clothed in animal skins and, and looked now in some sense... Uh, not like they were completely human, following just their instinctual desires as animals do, having lost the capacity of their reason or their mind to, to govern the lower senses. So too, Adam, uh, excuse me, Cain is sent out into the wilderness, into exile, to live as a beast. You remember that part? To live as a wild animal. He even has a mark upon him, which sets him apart from other human beings to scratch away and to claw away out in the wild world. The pattern's repeated. 
What about, well, a few generations later, it seems like everyone on the face of the earth looks like Cain. Every thought of humanity had become wicked. And so we see a different exile of sorts. We think of exile in wilderness and we think of barren desert, perhaps. We think Jesus out in the rocky soil, no life for anything. But this next story is an exile marked by the barrenness and the ability for life to flourish in the midst of a flood. And so, humanity enters into this exile. Noah and his family and some of the other animals are preserved in the ark and they're carried across until passing through the exile, they come to a mountain where the ship lodges and a dove comes, right, bearing the olive branch in its beak as a sign of peace. Got Adam and Eve and Cain and then all humanity with Noah preserved and then Abraham, next big person and family in the story. Abraham isn't sent out necessarily in response to or a consequence of his sin, uh, but it is part of God's response to sin because God, in response to the fallenness of humanity, is starting something new. And so Abraham goes out from his home, from his father's house, from the land of his kindred, into exile, into, into wilderness for all intents and purposes. He has, he has no clue where he's going. It's still land. God will show him. And he wanders. He lives this nomadic life. He ends up in Egypt, this place of, of exile where God's people keep going down to Egypt. He ends up there. He wanders a bit and eventually comes to a land. But his story, too, is marked by exile, a voyage out into the unknown. Isaac, Abraham's son, Isaac, enters into exile when he leaves his, his house and his family and he sets out into the wilderness and climbs a mountain with his father by his side carrying upon his back the wood which will become the altar which will be offered up as a sacrifice to the Lord. Isaac has all these questions like where's the sacrifice? <laughs> Abraham has all these uh, curious answers. God will provide one. He enters into exile marked as it is by death with a knife raised high above him. It's the pattern repeated again. Abraham, Isaac. Of course, Isaac is surrounded there, as that image is described, uh, with the altar and him bound upon it, surrounded by thorns and thistles which of course should be familiar to any of us who know the story of Adam and Eve set outside the garden with the thorns and thistles. This too, this death, is a consequence of sin, is a consequence of all that has come before. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob the heel grabber. Jacob the one who steals his brother's birthright. Steals his father's blessing. Steals, takes, grabs, and has to leave home because of it. Leaves his father's house and goes up into the north where he lives, where he grows, where he changes. But it is an exile nonetheless. He cannot stay home. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, who has 12 sons, the youngest of which is Joseph. Joseph, who was living at home and then was taken by his own brothers and cast into a pit. They thought about murdering him, the same sin of Cain, 
But then they decided just to throw him down into the pit, which translated is the word Sheol, which translated again is the word death. They throw Joseph into death. Then he goes from death into slavery. Slavers come, take him to Egypt. He's taken from slavery and thrown into a prison. It's this continual descent down. And Joseph's story begins to play out. So here, I would, that's the end of Genesis, right? So I just want to show you over and over this same basic cycle. The cycle of sin and death and exile plays out. But that's not the whole story of Genesis. I told you there was one other part, right? There's the hope part. That's also embedded in the story. It actually undergirds all of it. This hope, this thread of hope that runs through. So I want to show you in each of these instances, there's, there's hope that remains, right? Um, Adam and Eve, sin, sin into exile outside the garden, beyond the, the thorns and thistles, and yet they also receive a promise that God will one day set all things right, which means that God will also bring them back into paradise, that he will also bring them back into communion with himself. There's sin, there's death, there's exile, and there's hope. If you go into my study, someone gave me a painting. It's of Adam and Eve being raised out of Hades, Sheol, the pit, by the hand of Christ. There the promises come true. Adam and Eve received this promise. They had hope. Cain, marked out, sent out as an animal to live in the wilderness like an animal because he lived on the earth like an animal, murdering sinning, comes back from that wilderness. Noah, right? Humanity faces the wilderness, the exile of the flood, and yet are also preserved. Noah and his family, they come and they receive uh, the promise of God, the bow in the clouds, the dove with the olive branch of peace. There's sin, there's death, there's exile, but there's also hope of restoration. Abraham, is called to leave his father's house, to go into exile. But eventually, after all is wondering, he does come to this land of promise, this land set aside for him, a land flowing with milk and honey, a place where his family will grow and multiply the Lord promises so that they might be blessed to be a blessing. And his entrance into this new land is something that it is intended to bless the entirety of the world. Isaac, though he encountering sin, and faced with the prospects of death, carrying the wood of the altar up the hill, up to that place marked by thorns, outside paradise, looks when the voice of God stays the hand of his father bearing the knife into the mess of the thicket and sees a ram there caught the substitute the sacrifice which will be offered in his place. Sin, death, exile, hope. Think he had a little flicker of hope when he saw that ram? Maybe I am getting out of this. Think of Jacob. Uh, Jacob, who goes off into exile, but then comes back. His story isn't marked just by exile, but also by his return. His return where he encounters Esau, the one he stole everything from. And they can know reconciliation. He'd spent his life taking. And then prior to his meeting with Esau, he spent the days ahead of that just giving and giving and sending all he had over to his brother. 
And he wrestles with God in that place and he receives a new name after he passes through the water. The name Israel. And he becomes the eponymous ancestor of a nation. That just means the nation, his descendants, take on his name. Israel, one who wrestles with God. It's now the name of the people. Joseph, who descends into Sheol, is thrown in there by his brothers who sought his murder and gave him over into slavery and then was cast into prison and falsely accused. Eventually he makes his way up until he sits at the right hand. That's an interesting location, isn't it? The right hand of Pharaoh, the king of the strongest nation in the, in the known world at that point. He has charge over all. This pattern of sin, which leads to death, separation from God, and exile, life scratching away a hard existence, trying to figure it out, trying to make it work, but also now undergirded by hope and the gift of restoration is the pattern we see in Genesis and in every human life and in your own life. This is literally your story. But it's not just yours. It's Christ's. It's Christ's story. Where was he going when he spent these 40 days? Oh yeah, out into exile. Out into a place marked by death. Out into a place where he faced the temptation to sin. Out into a battle of sorts. In theology, there's, <clears throat> there's a way of understanding the life of Christ that's called uh, recapitulation. It means that Jesus in his person, as the human being, the second Adam, gathers up every single human life into his own. That includes you. It includes all these folks that we've read about in Genesis. It includes every human being who's ever lived. He gathers up all of humanity into his humanity and faces a life of sin and death and exile in this fallen world and yet doesn't sin and so opens up a new possibility for us in himself. That's why we have to be joined to him in baptism. That's why we have to die to ourselves so that we can live in him and through him. So what I want to just show you is how he gathers up every person I just listed. Jesus is, Scripture calls him the second Adam. I hope you've heard that before. If not, um, it's an amazing thing to, to meditate upon. But notice what he does. Jesus leaves paradise. He's in communion with the Father. He leaves paradise to enter into a fallen world. His, the basic first part of his journey is one of exile, right? Except this exile, he willfully and willingly chooses and undergoes for our sake. So it's not in consequence of sin, but just like Adam left paradise and had to go into exile, be world of thorns and thistles, so too does Jesus leave paradise and enter into our fallen state. Like Cain, he journeys out into the wilderness. We read about that this morning. It's not because he's murdered anyone, certainly. Uh, but it's because he enters in and he gathers up even Cain's story. And instead of living it as Cain did, he lives it rightfully. Jesus not seeking to murder his brother, but to love his brother and sister in the world. And he does that. Even though he's in this fallen, exilic wilderness of this world. Like Noah... Jesus passes through the water. It's the story of his baptism. Just prior to this, he goes through the water and passes under it. 
just like a bunch of other people did during the flood. He goes under the water, and he's raised back up, and as he does, what happens? That same dove, symbolic of the Spirit, comes and alights upon him, marking him out <coughs> as the place where God's peace can be known on this earth. See how he's doing this? For, he, is, he is Adam, but as Adam ought to be. He is Cain, a brother, who doesn't murder his brothers, but loves them. He is all people passing through the waters of the flood, but now opened up um, by the Spirit to a sign of what God has for us. He is, he is like Abraham, leaving his father's house. Right? He leaves heaven and comes to earth. Why? Same reason as, as Abraham. That through his blessing, the whole world might be blessed. He both fulfills the promise to Abraham, but also just as Abraham opened up a new land, Jesus opens up the kingdom, a new place where we can all have residence. We're citizens indeed of that heaven. Like Isaac, Jesus goes out into exile, climbs the same hill, practically, that Isaac did, carrying the wood of the cross upon his back, which will be the altar upon which he is laid. Except this time he looks in the thicket and realizes, oh, the thorns are on my head. I am the sacrificial lamb which is being offered up. And he offered himself in that place. Do you not see how crazy the Bible is? Like, this is the stuff I get pumped up about. The I mean, this is, the Bible's a miracle. If you push through a little bit, some of y'all reading it in 90 days, right? And you get the big picture. But it's, it's in the big picture, but it's also in the tiniest of details. Jesus had a crown of thorns crammed on his head. The thorns that were outside the garden marking death and sin in the world that marked out Isaac, the beloved son of his father who was going to be sacrificed, but the sacrifice was provided. A ram, Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's, you'd have to be crazy not to believe it. It's, for it to be not true is too unbelievable. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. And so Jesus, like uh, Isaac, is offered up, the lamb with the crown of thorns on his head. Like Jacob, uh, his exilic journey from paradise to live among us ultimately leads, just as Jacob's did, to reconciliation with his brother among humanity. That's what God's doing. He's drawing people out of the world into a relationship of love. That's what we're trying to learn how to do here. It's like, on a basic level, get along, right? To love one another sacrificially. Even, even in this fallen state where our toes get stepped on occasionally, or sometimes we do the stepping, is to learn forgiveness and love, reconciliation, just like Jacob and Esau had, just like Jesus provides for us. Like Joseph, he is mocked and ridiculed. Um, he's thrown into a pit. He takes the form of a slave, says Philippians. He's falsely accused in the prison. But then he is also raised up to the right hand of God the Father, ruler not only of Egypt, but of the universe. Like all those people, Jesus gathers their lives in to himself and lives it perfectly and rightly and well. And like you, here's, here's the <clears throat> rhetorical device, I'm going to say it three times, and like you, and like you, Jesus, faced temptation in his life. 
And like you, he faced exile in his life. And like you, he faced separation from God in his life. What did he cry from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like you. Jesus was also raised up to new life. Like you. Like you. So my hope is that as we see how Jesus gathers all of us and gathers you in, that he might also have a way for us to overcome sin and death and the devil. That's what he shows us in the wilderness. That's what we'll talk about next week. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.